Hello, and welcome to another episode of EdChoice Chats. My name is Mike McShane, and I'm Director of National Research at EdChoice. Today's podcast is part of a new series we're embarking upon called Cool Schools, wherein we will profile passionate educators around the country and the schools that they lead. This podcast series has two goals. Uh, The first is simply celebration. Starting a new school or running a great existing school is hard work. Too often, it's a thankless job. So we want to celebrate people who are trying something new and different and kick the tires on their ventures to uncover lessons that they've learned and can share with other educators around the country. The second goal is to try and stretch folks' mind about what is possible in education. As educational choice supporters, we at EdChoice spend a healthy amount of our time trying to promote educational options that don't exist yet. We push for states to pass laws that create the conditions for great new schools to open and scale, but many people struggle to wrap their minds around exactly what that might look like. In this podcast, we're going to highlight some of those potentialities. With quality school choice programs, innovative models like the ones we talk about here could be coming to a city near you. You know, at the outset, I would like to say that uh, we're not going to try and use this podcast to adjudicate whether or not these are quote-unquote good or bad schools. We're not going to examine their reading and math scores and ask them why their fourth graders aren't up to snuff. We are going to ask about mistakes that they've made, lessons they've learned, advice that they would give, and related questions that should be helpful for anyone listening, even if you're skeptical of their educational model or pedagogical strategy. I'm always on the lookout for more cool schools to profile, so if you know of one of those in your neck of the woods, please let me know about it. So Andrew Newman is Executive Chair and Chief Executive Officer of Open Sky Education. And Open Sky Education is actually really interesting because it supports and manages like a variety of different learning environments, including full-time private and charter schools. You may have heard of these. The private schools operate as the Hope Christian Schools. The charters operate as Eagle Prep. But not only that, they also do uh, Christian wraparound services as like before and after school programs, as well as character formation programs for both public and private Christian schools. So it's a really fascinating organization. Really glad we were able to talk to him. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Newman. So Andrew, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Uh, I think it's probably best to just kind of start at the beginning. So Open Sky Education is this this fascinating model that has lots of different um, initiatives underneath it. But maybe could you talk about where did it start? What is the origin story of Open Sky Education? Sure. Thanks, Mike. And thanks for the opportunity to, to chat about this today. Uh, it's quite a story to tell, actually. So all the way back in 2002 was when we opened the doors to our first school. Uh, we were serving, I believe it was 47 children uh, in, in the elementary school. Uh, and it really was born out of uh, the, the Wisconsin voucher program. Uh, so back in the late 1990s, uh, it was ruled uh, legislatively and, and uh, legally uh, uh, okay for faith-based schools to be able to utilize vouchers uh, to educate children. And so at the time, uh, faith-based education in Milwaukee was on the decline, and one of the major reasons was because many families just weren't able to, to afford the tuition to a private and faith-based school. So uh, when the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled this um, constitutional, it created a, a brand-new opportunity for people of faith to serve children that historically had not been able to afford uh, their schools. So. A group of very entrepreneurial Christians got together and said, what would it look like to create a school that really focused on very strong academics, uh, very focused on on character formation, as well as providing a vibrant uh, Christian education for kids uh, on the north side of Milwaukee. 
And it was born, like I said, the, the first school back in 2002, the small little school of just under 50 kids. And that school, that is the, now known as the Hope Christian Schools? Right. That school is the, the first school. It's called today Hope Christian School Prima, uh, and it today serves over 600 children. Oh, wow. So now, so you started with the Hope Christian Schools, and then was the next branch out into charter schools? Exactly. So gradually, as Hope was growing, um, we were looking for opportunities to, so we, we realized early on that our real goal was to try to figure out how do we provide those three pillars, academics, character, and faith formation, uh, to as many children as possible across our country. And so we were watching uh, policy shifts, and we saw that uh, the charter policy across our country was expanding much more rapidly than, uh, than, than school choice and than vouchers. And so uh, we recognized that within a charter school, two of those three pillars we could certainly do, the academics and the character formation. Uh, but, of course, they, they couldn't be Christian schools if they were uh, public schools. And so we thought, well, what would it look like if we created a charter school and then created optional programming through a separate organization that for any families that desired uh, faith-based programming? It could be an option before school or after school, uh, but not integrated into the primary curriculum. So that's what led us into uh, beginning our first charter school. Uh, that was launched in Arizona. Uh, and we now have eight charter schools in addition to our, our eight Christian schools within the organization. And then, so you also partnered to do these wraparound services, and then also you have some character formation programs. Could you could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, correct. So for us, uh, like I said, one of the three primary pillars is character formation, and character to us is more than just trying to curb a child's behaviors within a particular context uh, by using rewards and consequences. We're really trying to form children for life. We're trying to form children, preparing them to be great citizens uh, of their communities, of our country, leaders, uh, and great employees uh, in the workplace. We're trying to make them prepared uh, for, for days when they may be spouses or parents, et cetera. And so it's not just about changing behavior for the short term. It's about really the formation of a child uh, for life. And so that led us to say, um, how do we become far more intentional around internally formed character, the type of character that is going to go with the child for life, uh, which led us to eventually creating uh, what we call the Character Formation Project, uh, which serves all of our own schools as well as our, our wraparound programs, the child care programs. But uh, the Character Formation Project is now beginning to serve other schools outside of our own schools. Uh, a number of other Christian schools, as well as public schools and charter schools, have asked us to come and partner with them to, to train their teachers and provide some content for them around the same, the same subject. So across all of these different initiatives, how many children do you all serve? Oh, that's a good question. Our, our schools themselves serve around 5,000 children. Um, there would be just under 1,000 children that participate in our child care centers. Uh, and the character project, I, I don't have a, a firm number on that. It would be in the thousands. I just don't know the exact number, Mike. Sure. Sure. Now, now your organization is unique in the sense of stretching across these different areas, private schooling, charter schooling, character formation. Um, I'm sort of curious as to how you navigate all that. They seem to be relatively different worlds that they operate in. You're in different states. How do you keep everything straight? I think ultimately to us, the focus is, is the child, right? So there's different different strategies, I suppose, to how do we serve children, but the focus is still the same. It's really the formation of the child and delivering those three pillars of academics, character, and for families that desire a faith formation. So as long as we stay focused on that's the core strength that we have, we can then be really creative around what are the different channels uh, or strategies through which we're going to deliver uh, products or services uh, for families to serve children. So now, how did you get involved in all of this? 
<laughs> well, that's, that's probably a longer story than we have time for, Mike. But um, in, in, a, in a nutshell, um, when I was in graduate school out in Colorado, um, I, I began studying what was happening across America in education and began to see two really, um, I guess, startling uh, gaps that to me were very concerning. The first was the significant gap between the way we're performing as a nation and other countries globally when it comes to achievement in education. And I, you know, the, the studies that I was reading were showing that we're spending more dollars per student than anybody else in the world. And yet uh, the product that we're delivering uh, is ranking between 25th and 30th with other developed uh, countries. And so recognizing the importance of education in the global economy, uh, this felt like a very dangerous pattern for, for our country to continue. Uh, but then secondly, within those statistics, when you look within our country, you could also see a second really important gap, and that is the gap between children coming from lower-income families uh, versus higher-income families. And personally, as a, as a person of faith, uh, you know, I, I don't believe that God has handed out intelligence based on the, the income uh, that a parent makes, and so I see no reason why we should be able to uh, see significant differences in terms of achievement based on the income of a family when you look at the, the child's test scores. And so that, for me, was also very concerning because it means that we have many children in our country that for some reason are falling through the cracks of their current educational system and became very passionate about trying to find ways that I could contribute uh, in some small way of helping find solutions to this. And so when I found myself in Milwaukee, um, I was a professor in the math department of a small liberal arts college, um, which is uh, how I found out about uh, Hope Christian School at the time. Uh, one of the other professors that was there with me in the education department had started this organization and, and uh, became very excited about the possibility of creating a new education system or, or ways of delivering education in a publicly funded means uh, so that income wasn't a screen for who could have access to the programs. Um, and, and one thing led to another. I began, began volunteering into the organization. After I volunteered for a while, they asked if I would join the board. And uh, as I was on the board, the, I guess the final bait on the hook, so to speak, was, was asked to create a sort of a long-term plan for where the organization could go. And, and uh, following that, the board asked if, they, if I'd consider um, leaving the college. Actually to come and join implementing the it. Yeah. Exactly. So Actually making it happen. <laughs> Exactly. So by then, my passion was so great for what we were doing. It was a very easy decision to, to come over and help help lead the organization. So I'm interested in kind of parsing some of this around charter schooling versus private schooling and the, and the ways you, you mentioned that, you know, the charter world has grown faster than the private school world or the private school choice world. Given that you have sort of feet in both of those areas, do you have any sort of hypotheses as to why that's been happening? I think that it feels to me, you know, policy is not my area. I'm, sure. not, I'm not the expert there. We, we run schools, uh, but observing <laughs> sort of as a, as a third-party observer, it feels to me like the policies generally have been designed for two different purposes. It feels to me like from the start, charter school policy has really been about incubating new schools and new seats versus the voucher or private school choice policy generally, then this is not completely true, but as a generalization feels like more it's about incremental growth of filling up uh, vacant seats in existing schools. So if you sort of look at those two different sets of policy, um, those policies end up being very different. So for example, when we look at the charter school space, the charter school funding uh, is generally adequate to fully fund the operational cost of the school versus most voucher policies are not adequate uh, to fully fund the operational costs of a school. That makes a significant difference in terms of um, the scalability of an organization like ours to generate new schools and new seats. 
Secondly, um, because of that, it, it creates a significant difference when it comes to innovation. Um, if, the, if the primary uh, recipient of the funding is, is a new organization specifically designed uh, for the marketplace that they're going into, there's a much higher likelihood of significant innovation versus if the funding is going into an existing organization that has you know, a, a multiple decades of a track record of doing what they've been doing, and they're now adding maybe incremental seeds to their existing model, um, it doesn't spur the type of entrepreneurism and, and innovation. And so I think that, um, to me, that on a broad level, the fact that the policies feel to me as though they've been really focused on really different and the goals um, you end up with, then of course the marketplace um, reacting to that very, very differently. Sure. So, really, I mean, talking about funding, I mean, that's a policy problem. Are there other sort of policy issues that make your life difficult? Uh, there's a ton of them. Uh, you know, one of the major ones is income caps. Um, so, for us to be successful in the market, we, of course, uh, the, the the revenue, the primary revenue that we receive is from children enrolling in our schools. And so um, we have to be able to have enough children eligible for a program within a marketplace for us to be able to be successful. And when you income cap a program, um, you are eliminating a significant part of the marketplace's opportunity to participate in your program, which then makes it much more difficult to go into many different places to, to run your school. And so income capping is certainly uh, one uh, because it limits the marketplace. I, I'm not aware of any charter, uh, charter policy that has an income cap in place. Um, and I there are very few, if any, uh, voucher policies that are fully funded that don't have an income cap in place. That makes a, a tremendous difference. That's that's fascinating. You know, because one of the arguments that the sort of pro-income cap people say is that if we don't do that, uh, private schools, private school choice, uh, private schools participating in private school choice programs will not serve low-income students. Um, and as someone who started a private school to serve low-income students, I would imagine you disagree with that assessment. Well, I think, you know, we can have the discussion in theory, I suppose, and, and everybody have a theoretical stance on that, but we can now, we now have the benefit of looking through the rearview mirror, and it doesn't have to be a theoretical argument. Just look at the charter sector um, and see, uh, is the charter sector with a no-income cap policy and a fully funded policy serving more or less low-income children than the voucher sector with a income-capped policy uh, and generally less less revenue, right? So we can we can sit here and, and pretend and have a theoretical argument saying what would happen if, but we don't need to. We can now look back and say, well, what happened? What's the result of these two policies? And it's obvious that an, a policy that has no income caps that is fully funded is serving a much higher number uh, of low-income children across our country um, than than the alternative. That's a fascinating point. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a good one. So. So I'm curious. I, I have had the uh, benefit of actually going to at least one. I was racking my brain. I know, uh, I think last year I went to the Eagle Prep Charter in St. Louis, which is a wonderful school and, and got the whole tour and it was great. And I'm like 99% positive when I was back in graduate school, um, I was at one of the Hope Christian schools in Milwaukee uh, and, and was similarly uh, impressed by that. But I'm curious. How do you measure success? How do you know if what you are doing is working? We have a number. We have a school dashboard that we look at on a monthly basis. I won't go through all of the measurements there, but it's a really comprehensive dashboard. We use a lot of data uh, to, to measure uh, progress within our schools uh, throughout the year. But some of the highest level measurements, of course, there's an going back to those three pillars, right? Academics uh, and character, and then faith formation, as well as if you talk about organizational success. 
um, we do recognize that that the, the business has to also work. Um, so one of the things we say is without margin, there is no mission uh, financially. We have to be able to keep the, the boats afloat as well. So we look we look at academics for sure. Um, we use the NWA MAP assessment. Uh, we are especially focused on growth. We recognize that the majority of the children that we have the privilege to serve uh, are coming into our schools testing multiple grades below level. Um, it's not as if they're, you know, two months away from being proficient or, or even a year away from being proficient. Many times the children that, that we have the privilege of serving uh, come in multiple grades below level. So proficiency is not the best way for us to look at academics. Uh, we do, though, look a lot at growth. Are they growing by a year? Are they growing by 1.2 years, 1.3 years of growth? That's one of the major areas of focus for us academically. Um, are, are we essentially helping them to catch up and bridge that gap and eventually accelerate past, uh, past proficient? Uh, when it comes to character formation and or faith formation, um, there we're more looking at our theory of change and we're measuring inputs. So are we staying consistent at, uh, with our model um, that the research shows that our model is, is going to work? And so are we being, are we executing that model with fidelity? So we have a number of internal measures that measure that. And then, of course, we're looking at all the different business, uh, you know, enrollment um, and staff retention uh, and student retention and, you know, financial performance and things like that as well. So, so sort of looking back on uh, your time in the organization and all of the things that you've done, I'd be interested to know, like, what were some of the hurdles as you maybe – maybe it's as you entered into each of these areas, so into the private school uh, world and private school choice world, into the charter school world, into the wraparound services world, into the sort of character uh, education world. What were some of the hurdles that you had to overcome? Oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there are, there are a number um, of, of hurdles, I guess, along the way. One of the, I think, one of the most important opportunities for us, uh, hurdles we had to overcome, is is finding um, and and really bringing really top talent to the organization. Um, this is a very people-intensive business, and it simply cannot be successful without a great teacher in every classroom and a great leader in every building. Uh, and that is really critically important. Uh, and I think today, as we look uh, at, at what's happening macro picture in education, uh, we are seeing more and more teacher shortages. Um, and the quality of the teacher workforce is not where it needs to be sort of macro, um, I think, to really move our country to where it needs to go um, uh, long term. So I think one of the hurdles is definitely uh, talent. Uh, that's really important. The second one, this is interesting, uh, is facilities. Uh, it's been it's been interesting to try to understand how do you locate buildings with adequate space into densely populated areas. Um, you know, it's not like there's lots of green space or undeveloped land um, to, to purchase when you're working in urban centers. So how do you how do you create the space necessary uh, for the educational environment to happen? So that's been significant hurdle. Even how do you work with lenders um, and the lending um, institution? Uh, to understand what it looks like to make an investment into a new market. You know, a voucher or charter market has been fairly new, and also into an urban center, uh, where generally our costs of developing a piece of property um, end up being more than what that property appraises for. So that really limits your potential lending options. So those are a couple of pretty significant hurdles. So what a, a talent, I mean, this is, is an incredibly important piece of this. So where where do you find your teachers? Where do you find your leaders? Is it is it from faith-based universities that are sort of uh, ideologically aligned? Is it from kind of traditional teacher preparation or leader preparation programs? So we have – there's not been one silver bullet in that answer that question for us. Uh, we have a number of university and college partners uh, for sure, uh, some of which are faith-based uh, teachers' colleges. 
that have been very helpful to us. Um, also, organizations for us, like in Milwaukee, the Center for Urban Teaching has been a great partner, as well as TFA in some of our regions has been a great partner um, for helping us to find talent. I would say that probably one of our keys to success uh, is in-house developing a very robust and intense teacher development program. Um, so we, we recognize that I mean, we're, we're hiring for, uh, we're trying to find people that love, love children, um, who have strong character, who care deeply about our mission and believe uh, in the possibilities of all children. Um, and if we can find those things, uh, we have very, very uh, intense summer institutes for training teachers. We have early release days every single week. Uh, where we're spending a couple hours per week developing our teachers. We have data days where we're breaking down data that's built right into our calendar to develop our teachers. So I would say it's a combination of strong partners uh, to help us develop the pipeline uh, coming in of really mission-aligned people, but then coupled with a really intentional and intense internal training program uh, to continue to develop teachers once they join the organization. So I'd like to close with two questions. One question in which I'm going to kind of ask you to look in the rear view mirror, and one where I'm going to ask you to look forward. So the, so the, the rear view mirror facing question is, if you could go back in time to when you got started in this endeavor and give yourself one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? It's a marathon and not a sprint. Um, I mean, we have to work at our work with urgency. It is so important. We have to recognize that, uh, you know, a, a child who's in third grade today, you know, will not be that age again. Uh, they only get that year once. And, and so there is a huge sense of obligation and urgency, um, you know, for our work. But that said, we are not going to achieve the long-term goals that we have in a day. Um, this is something where we have to both personally and also institutionally be looking at this as a, uh, you know, a multi-decade, maybe even multi-generational work that we're engaged in. And we have to both personally and, again, organizationally structure ourselves in a way that we can be engaged in this work for the marathon um, as opposed to trying to, to make a flash because um, the flash is not going to be the, the long-term change that we want to see. So I, I would want myself to know it's a marathon and not a sprint. I think that's an incredibly important point. I think has really been a blind spot of education reform writ large. Um, I think you're exactly right that there there is obviously the, as Dr. King said, the fierce urgency of now. But if you're so focused on trying to get the biggest impact in the shortest amount of time and you don't worry about sustainability of either yourself or the program that you're trying to do, um, it can really get in, get in your way. So that's a great point. So, so then my last question is a forward-looking one. So what does the next year hold, the next five years hold, the next 10 years hold for, for Open Sky Education? Well, what's right in our windshield across the organization, whether it's the schools division or the, the child care division or whether it's our character project, um, we are in a stage right now, we've grown significantly. It's been such a blessing in the last uh, three to four years. Um, and we're now needing to go back and, and rebuild a number of systems to prepare for the next stage of growth. And so for the next year or two, uh, we are going to be very, very focused um, on solidifying systems, uh, growing consistency of results, and preparing uh, to do what we do in a repeatable way um, so that we can have predict predictable success um, and in a scalable way into the future. So that's kind of in the, in the short term. It's a, it's a significant transition for the organization, uh, but a really exciting one uh, for us. Uh, and then what we hope to happen after that is to continue to significantly grow to serve more children, both in our existing communities uh, as well as in new communities um, through all three of the different divisions, through the schools division and the child care division, as well as the, 
the character project. So we are definitely open to expanding within the markets of Arizona, Missouri, and Wisconsin. We see some significant opportunity in all three of those markets still, but uh, we also look forward to engaging into new markets. Uh, we have been reached out to by, by many individuals from places across the country and look forward to be, being ready to, to serve them with high-quality um, educational programming as well. Well, I can't wait to see what y'all do. Uh, Andrew Newman, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you, Mike. So that was my talk with Andrew Newman. How cool is he? So much great insight. It was wonderful to chat with someone who, who's worked across these different areas, not just private schooling, but also charter schooling and also trying to do kind of one-off character development, working in public schools, working in private schools, doing wraparound services, a little bit of everything. I was, I was particularly struck, as you might be imagining, him talking about that really kind of interesting diversion that we went on about income caps and the kind of pernicious effects that they have. Um, definitely something I will be thinking about uh, long after I uh, stop listening to this podcast. Uh, not this podcast in general, that podcast in particular. You know, as always, uh, if you're enjoying this podcast content and you want more sent right to your phone or whatever your listening device is, please, please, please subscribe to uh, this podcast. It lets us know that folks are listening and, and makes us want to keep making them. Um, if you have other cool schools, please email me, tweet me. I'm at at MQ underscore McShane, or you can tweet straight to the Ed Choice handle, which is just at Ed Choice. Would love to know, is someone in your community doing something awesome? Do your kids go to a really cool school that should be um, that should be featured here? Do you teach in one? Are you leading one? Are you starting one? I'd love to be able to uh, chat with you about it. As always, the easiest way to get the best Ed Choice content is to sign up for our emails. Um, you can create a profile where the, the content that's sent to you is just the sort of stuff that you want. If you're a research nerd like me, we will have more research than you can handle. Um, if you like uh, some of the other work that we do, you can kind of customize for what is, is most interesting to you. So as always, thank you so much um, for taking the time to spend a half an hour or so with us as we talk about cool schools. And stay tuned for the next installment. Take care. Mm-hmm.